Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 9th, 2022, and this is show number 909. Well, I'm up to part five of my tiny Mac tip series as written articles now, and you're going to hear part five in this week's podcast. But if you'd like to actually see some of these tips in action, Screencast Online has just released my latest video tutorial demonstrating 15 of my favorites. I've also finished production of more Tiny Mac tips for Screencast Online, but you're going to have to wait for that one. If you're a visual learner, Screencast Online tutorials are the way to learn. I've given you in the show notes, there's a teaser video to watch. And remember, you can get a free seven-day trial during which you can binge as much of the back catalog as you'd like, along with my tiny Mac tips. Check it out at screencastonline.com. This week's Chit Chat Across the Pond is a light episode, but it's also with Bart Bouchotts. In this episode, he teaches us about a relatively new concept in IT security called zero trust. You may have heard him mention it a few times before. He explains how the old ways of simply securing the perimeter of your organization are no longer enough. You simply can't trust that inside your network you're safe from bad actors. The solution has three principles that guide organizations in developing the rules of who and which devices and which networks are allowed to have access to what data and for how long. That part sounds like the heavy lifting to me. Bart then explains how the fun part is then using the rules that have been developed to implement these rules using technology. Bart's explanation of how the technology works is a bit specific to Microsoft's products, but the concepts he explains are definitely applicable to any vendor solution. We, of course, have detailed show notes from Bart, and you can find Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, episode 745, on Zero Trust in your podcatcher of choice. Now let's talk about some more tiny Mac tips. This is an ongoing series I started in order to teach my dear friend Jill from the Northwoods how to move from an adequate Mac user to a proficient one. If you missed the earlier installments, we also have uh, links in the show notes to Tiny Mac Tips Part 1, 2, 3, and 4. All right, let's get started. If you've been using the Mac for any length of time, you know about the dock. You know you can drag icons out of the dock for apps you don't use and drag other applications into the dock that you use more often. You probably also know that you can drag apps side to side to rearrange them. You probably also know that you can change the dock behavior using the dock and menu bar system preference pane. You can change things like how big the dock items are, the level of magnification, and more. But did you know that you can do a lot of these same functions without even opening system preferences? If you look at your dock, it's broken up into three sections designated by two thin vertical lines. The far left section is the apps you've chosen to always have live in the dock. The next section has apps that were recently open and which may now be closed. The final section on the far right of the dock holds trash, downloads, and any documents you've chosen to hide. You can remove downloads from the dock, but trash is a permanent fixture. You probably knew all that too, but those vertical lines separating these three sections have magical powers. Click and hold on either one of them and drag up and down and you'll change the size of the dock and the app icons inside it. To access even more controls, right-click in the space near either vertical line and you'll be rewarded with a pop-up menu. In this menu, you can toggle hiding on and off, you can toggle magnification, you can change the position of the dock on screen from left to bottom to right, and you can toggle the minimization effect between the genie and scale effects. Finally, you can open dock preferences directly from that pop-up menu if there's something more advanced you'd like to do. 
I think it's pretty cool that you can do so much with the dock right from the dock. Now, the next tip is probably one of the tiniest ones of all. Have you ever been on a website where you were given a free-form text box, and while they let you type a lot into that box, the box isn't large enough to see everything that you've typed? If you're a Safari user, look in the bottom right of that little text area. You may see two diagonal lines in the corner. If you do, you can actually drag the bottom right corner and resize the text box so you can see as much as you need. That's not a life-changing trick, but I am always happy when I see those tiny lines indicating a resizing handle for the text area. Now, here's another really quick trick. Menu bar items seem to proliferate on the Mac, at least on mine, and the order of them seems kind of mysterious. Near as I can figure, they seem to be in the order of the most recently installed applications with the newest ones on the left. Now, have you ever wished you could rearrange them? If you hold down the command key, you can click and drag them right and left to your heart's content. Well, not, not exactly to your, completely to your heart's content, because you can't change the order of a few of the Apple menu bar items, like the clock and control center. They have a sacred order and don't even think about trying to move those. Most of the Apple menu bar items can be removed from the menu bar using that handy-dandy dock and menu bar preference pane we were just chatting about. Now, the next tip takes a while to explain, but it's actually quite easy to use and it's very powerful, but it's, it's kind of clumsy to explain, but bear with me. Once you get the hang of this one, you're going to love it. One of the hidden treasures of macOS is the built-in color picker. So let's set up a problem to be solved to show how powerful it is. The color picker, by the way, works across all standard Mac apps. Developers get it for free and most of them choose to use it. I'll use Preview for my example since we know everyone has the built-in app if they're using a Mac. Let's say you've taken a screenshot and some sensitive information is in it that you'd like to obscure before posting it publicly. In the Preview app, open the Markup toolbar by clicking on the little pen inside a circle. That'll open up uh, this whole new menu bar. In the toolbar, you can choose a shape to obscure the sensitive information. I recommend a rectangle. To the right, you can choose the fill color. If you select the fill color, you'll get a drop-down with a grid of colors from which to choose. Now, we could pick any old color to fill up or to cover up that sensitive information, but it'd be really obvious that we'd done so if we, say, used a red box to cover up something that was on a blue background. Ideally, we'd covered it up with a color that matched the existing background. At the bottom of this grid of colors that comes up when you choose fill color, it also says in wee tiny letters at the bottom, show colors. If we select that, we get a window with five tabs with different options on how to choose colors. By default, it starts at the color wheel tab. This lets you drag a target around on the wheel to choose a color and you can set the darkness of the color chosen and even the opacity. There are also tabs to let you use sliders to change colors, a tab with a narrow set of predefined colors like red and blue, which I actually use really often, and you'll see a tab to let you choose by spectrum, or you can even choose from a box of colored pencils, which is kind of a playful, fun way to do it. All of these are swell options, and like I said, I admit I often use the narrow color options to simply pick red, but we want a very specific color. In the example screenshot I took from Amazon's review page, my name is shown in the screenshot over a light turquoise background. I want to draw a box to cover my name that is the exact same color. On every one of the tabs of the color window, down at the bottom you'll see the color you've chosen with a tiny eyedropper next to it. 
This is the color eyedropper, and it is magical. I know I use that a lot, but this one really is magical. Simply click once on the eyedropper, and then move your cursor over the color you want to use. You'll see a big circle magnifying your cursor position. The information you see in this magnifier will help you make sure you get exactly what you want. In cases maybe there's multiple colored pixels right near each other and there's just one you want to get, you'll be able to see it in that magnifier. When you're over the exact color you want, click once. Now back in the color window, the color in the bottom left is the one you chose from your screenshot. In preview, the fill color will have also changed to the color you've chosen. You can draw a rectangle now over the information you'd like to obscure, and it will disappear, leaving no trace of the previous information. Well, maybe, maybe not. There might be one more step. Preview also has an outline color, so you might get the perfect light turquoise rectangle, but if the outline color is set to red, you've got a smidge more work to do. You can change the outline color to none by selecting the white box with the red line through it, or you can choose the color picker again to set the outline color to be the same as the fill color. This is definitely one of those tricks that sounds super complicated when explained, but it is super quick in execution. Now my example was an image editing application, but the color picker and eyedropper are available all across macOS wherever you need to choose a color. You can even use it for text color, and you can use the eyedropper to grab color in completely different apps than where you're working. So you could even pull it, say, from a picture on your desktop if you wanted to. Practice looking for the color eyedropper wherever you pick a color, and you'll quickly become proficient at getting exactly the color you want. Having the color picker with the eyedropper built into just about every app where you need color is a really powerful feature of macOS. Do you remember the old days when if you didn't know a word you were reading, you would go pull the giant physical dictionary out of the bookcase and look up the word to find out what it meant? If not, go ask your parents or grandparents. I still have mine for nostalgia's sake. If you're on a Mac, you can do the same thing from the comfort of your own fingertip. Simply tap and hold on any word you see on your Mac, and you'll get a pop-up showing you the dictionary definition of that word. I use this all the time to increase my vocabulary. For example, if I look up, uh, if I tap and hold on the word Sunday, the dictionary tells me a dish of ice cream with added ingredients such as fruits, nuts, syrup, and whipped cream. At the bottom of the pop-up, you'll see a list of other resources available to give you more information. If you're not just looking up the definition of a word, but instead maybe you want to know more about a country or a region mentioned in the news, you can flip through the options to take a look at Siri knowledge or a Siri suggested websites. The list you'll see to choose from is contextual and based on the word or words you look up. For example, in a news article about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I can select Volodymyr Zelensky and then press and hold and it opens Siri knowledge first instead of the dictionary. I'm also offered Siri suggested websites or news. If you need a different dictionary, you can select the gear next to configure dictionaries. This will reveal a list of the references resources it's currently using. You could deselect any of the selected sources and add new sources, and change the order of precedence. For me, it defaulted to a few English dictionaries, but I can choose from a multitude of different dictionaries in other languages as well. Now, I'm trying to stay focused on macOS tips for this series, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Lookup exists on iOS and iPadOS as well. Your options may be slightly different, but it functions essentially in the same way. We all know about spotlight searching on the Mac using command space, but there's another way to utilize the power of spotlight to create tailored searches in the finder. 
If you open a Finder window in any view, if it's wide enough, on the far right side of the Windows toolbar, you'll see a magnifying glass. If your Finder toolbar isn't visible, in the Finder menus, choose View Show Toolbar or use Option-Command-T to toggle it on. Now let's start by doing a simple search for a file by name. With the Finder window open to any folder on your Mac at all, click on the magnifying glass in the toolbar and start typing any text string. For my example, I'd like to find a cross-stitch pattern I made recently for my grandson Parker. It was a baby towel I cross-stitched with Baby Avengers superheroes on it. I put a picture of it in the show notes. You gotta go see how cute it is. So I have a lot of files with cross-stitch in them, but let's make it challenging for Spotlight and I'll just search for cross. As you start to type, the, the display of the Finder window will begin to change. Right under the toolbar, you'll see search colon, and it'll say this Mac, followed by the name of the folder you were in when you started. This means you can isolate your search to just that original folder, or you can search your entire computer. By default, it starts with the entire computer. Now, if you want to more often do a search like this from the specific folder you've chosen, which is my choice, you can change that default. Select Finder from the menu bar and open Finder Preferences. If you select the Advanced tab, at the bottom you'll see When Performing a Search, and there's a dropdown showing Search This Mac. You can change it to search the current folder or use the previous search scope. Now that we've had that housekeeping out of the way, let's have some fun making more powerful searches because it gets way better than this. After I typed the word cross into Spotlight in the Finder window, it found 2,278 file matches on my Mac. This demonstrates that Spotlight not only searches file names, but it finds the word matches inside the documents as well. I need to narrow the search down to find that Avengers cross-stitch pattern. Right under the search box in the upper right, you'll see a save button and a plus button. We'll come back to save in a moment. If we hit the plus button, we can add more criteria to narrow our search. We can now see another row of options with two dropdowns. They say kind and any. No wonder it found 2,278 matches to my query. It was any kind, right? If I select the dropdown that says any, I can change the criteria to application, archive, document, executable, and many more. I'm going to choose it to PDF for this exercise because I know the cross-stitch pattern is a PDF. This immediately narrows the search results from 2,278 to 121. Now we're getting somewhere. I also know that I worked on this cross-stitch project in the last year because Parker's just coming up on his first birthday. Let's hit the plus button again. This time I'll change the left dropdown to created date. This changes the second dropdown to show within last, followed by a field where I can type in a number and a default that says, I'm sorry, a dropdown that defaults to the word days. So it's saying within the last number of days. I could type in one and change days to years if I wanted to. But I'm pretty sure it was in 2022, so I'll be lazy and change to the, the within last dropdown to just say this year. That way I don't have to type in any numbers. I can now see 13 PDFs, all of which have this text string cross in them somewhere that were created in the last year. Now, the real power of Spotlight comes when you start to investigate the vast array of criteria you have from which to choose. Well, the first drop-down field shows options just for kind, last open date, last modified date, created date, name, and contents. Below that, it says other. Not only am I not going to list off all of the options under other, I'm not even going to count the number of options. There are so many. I captured the list using the scrolling screenshot option in CleanShot X, and if I shrink it down to see all of them, 
I can't even read their names. The list is, the text is so small. I put a link to the full-size list in the show notes just for your amusement, but don't think you're even going to be able to read them all. But you, you could scroll through them all, I guess, if you want to. You're going to have to trust me that if you can think of any unique criteria to find a file on your Mac, Apple has them in that list of options. I can prove it to you. In 2019, Steve and I went to Chile to see a total eclipse of the sun and to tour the amazing telescopes they have there, guided by an astrophysicist. The coolest one we saw was ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. ALMA came into wide fame when it was one of the telescopes that were combined together to create the first image of a black hole. ALMA is so high up that we had to take blood pressure tests before we were allowed to go up, and we were issued oxygen tanks to keep ourselves alive while we were there. It was also brutally cold, and the UV index was 11. I literally did not know it goes to 11. Anyway, we took a photo of ourselves in front of the array. I thought it would be fun to try to find it on my desk, on my desktop, or on my Mac somewhere, using these advanced spotlight searches in Finder. I knew it was a JPEG, so that was my first criterion in spotlight search. I also knew that we were standing at 5,042.9 meters above sea level, 3.36 miles above sea level, when the photo was taken on Steve's iPhone. I suspected that the altitude information might be included in the EXIF data for the image. Under the first dropdown, I selected Other, and from that giant list of options, I selected Altitude. On the second dropdown, I selected Is Greater Than, and I typed in 5,000 meters. I was rewarded with a file entitled Steve Allison Alma Telescope.jpg. Now, if you find one of these specialized options that you think you might want to use pretty often, there's a checkbox next to each one in that giant list, and you can add it to the dropdown menu. I told you near the beginning that there's a save button that I'd explain later. Save creates a smart folder that will save in your user library under save searches, or you can specify a location of your own for save searches. You can also check a box to put the save search into the sidebar of all of your finder windows. As with all smart folders, you can right click on it, select show criteria, and from there, modify the criteria to your heart's delight. Now, I tend to use regular Spotlight for finding and launching apps, but I use the Finder-level Spotlight whenever I want to find a file. All right, I have to say I'm still having a blast telling you all of these Mac Tiny tips, so I expect this series to go on for quite some time. I'm learning more about the features as I try to explain them, so I benefit right along with you. I expect that macOS Ventura will force me to go back through some of these to see how they've changed and to find new Mac Tiny tips to help you be more productive. Like most people, Steve and I sprinkle charging options for our iPhones all around the house. While Qi charging seems easier than plugging in a lightning cable, we found that setting a phone down exactly right on a flat charger mat didn't work that well. It was too easy to miss and not realize you weren't charging. And then we discovered easel chargers. These are basically a tilted stand to hold your phone, and by design, it aligns the coils correctly, so you rarely return to an uncharged phone. I used one for nighttime charging next to my bed, and Steve used one at his desk. He likes to have his phone in a position where he can see the screen while he's on his computer and have it charge at the same time. On occasion, he likes to go in landscape mode, but mostly he likes it in portrait mode. These easel Qi chargers, like the one I had from Anchor, are usually less than $20 and solve the right problem for both of us. We bought two MagSafe charger pucks right after getting our first iPhone 12 Pros with MagSafe, but they didn't get much use. It worked well enough, but having the phone lying down on our desks or bedside tables wasn't quite what we wanted. 
We wanted to be able to see our phones while they were charging. The easel stands were the clear winners. The iPhone 13 Pro had a darn big camera bump, but then the iPhone 14 Pro came along and said, hold my beer. A few people have been talking about how the phone doesn't lie flat on a table, but more importantly, it doesn't lie flat against an easel charger. With our phones in our new cases, the camera bump tilts the phone so far away from the easel's back that the coils in the phone and charger can no longer interact, and charging fails to occur. Without a case, the phone is a smidge closer and can charge in the easel, but we don't trust ourselves without cases. Qi charging on its best day isn't the most efficient way to charge. Any air gap at all and you've got a lot of energy loss. Even back when phones were flat without camera bumps, any case would reduce the efficiency of that type of charging. When we discovered our iPhone 14's Pro, iPhone's 14 Pro? Whatever, our phones wouldn't charge on our easel stands, we decommissioned them and dusted off our MagSafe chargers. My desk, I don't really mind setting the phone down flat, but Steve really didn't like that solution. He couldn't see his phone while it was charging at his desk. On his bedside table, Steve has had the Belkin MagSafe 3-in-1 wireless charger in black. He's had it for quite a while now. It's beautiful and elegant. I think I bought it for him for Christmas. It holds your phone and watch suspended a good three inches in the air. It has a very heavy base, so it doesn't move around when you pull off your phone. And it comes with a MagSafe and Apple Watch charging pucks built in. It also has a spot to charge your AirPods case, but neither one of us uses AirPods. The Belkin 3-in-1 is very expensive at $150, but it's an elegant solution to the problem. And remember, it comes with $70 worth of Apple charging pucks. That still costs a grip. I replaced my easel stand and an Apple Watch charging stand on my bedside table with the same 3-in-1 charging stand from Belkin, but in this case, I bought mine in white. My bedside table is now far less cluttered, and there's only one wire to hide. The Belkin 3-in-1 wasn't the right solution for Steve's desk, though, because it holds the phone up so high in the air that it would block his displays. He also didn't need to charge his watch at his desk very often, so that would have been a waste of money and space. Belkin also sells a $99 MagSafe 2-in-1 stand that charges an iPhone, again suspended in air, with a spot to charge AirPods at the base. The Boost Charge Pro 2-in-1 MagSafe stand is smaller, so it wouldn't block his displays as much as the 3-in-1, but it was still much taller than the old easel stand. He wanted a MagSafe charger that had put his phone as low to the desk as possible. Both of us spent a long time searching for a solution for Steve's desk. This week, Steve and I met up with good friend and Osilla Castaway, Norbert Frassa, for lunch, and as one does, I chose a restaurant as close as possible to an Apple store. We didn't need anything, but we went wandering in there anyway. While we were perusing things we didn't need at the Apple store, we explained to Norbert the problem Steve was trying to solve. Norbert noticed that they carried a stand from 12 South, and that's one of the favored vendors of many Apple fans. The stand is called the 12th South Forte for MagSafe charger, and it runs $40. That's a lot less than the Belkin solutions. But pay attention to the wording. It does not say with MagSafe charger. It says for MagSafe charger. In other words, you have to supply your own. The MagSafe charger by itself is another $39. So if you don't already own one, you're looking at $80 for this combo, which is not much less than the $100 Belkin MagSafe charger stand. Luckily, as I mentioned earlier, Steve has a MagSafe charger, and it was collecting dust. Steve looked at the Forte and decided to buy it. Spoiler, it's perfect for him. The 12 South Forte is a very simple white design. 
It has a small square base, maybe half the size of an iPhone Pro, with a cylindrical post coming up at an angle towards you. There's a circular piece at the top into which you squish your MagSafe charger puck. The charger puck's cable comes out of the bottom edge of the circular part and then feeds into a channel in the white post at the back to mostly hide the cable. I think the design could be improved to more effectively hide the cable. When your phone isn't on the charger, you can see the cable sticking out a bit from the bottom of the circle. Compared to the clean design of Belkin's MagSafe charger stands, it's a little funky, but it's not that bad. It looks pretty good. One of the key features of the Forte, different from all, most of the ones that we've looked at, is that the circular puck area is articulated, so you can tilt the angle of the phone to your liking. You can even rotate it to the point that the screen is straight up, though I don't know why you'd want to. Since it's MagSafe, you can put your phone in portrait or landscape position, or even on a diagonal if you're some kind of anarchist. Now, the most important feature to Steve is that the phone sits very close to the desk, thereby not blocking his screens any more than necessary. He's delighted he was able to find a good solution with the characteristics he needed and only spend an extra $40. Now, in my searches on Belkin's site, I think I missed another option before we bought Steve's Forte. But after he bought it, I found that Belkin sells what they call the Boost Charge Magnetic Wireless Charger Stand. It holds the phone pretty low and supports both landscape and portrait positions, but it's not articulated like the Forte. Now, it's not MagSafe, but it is magnetic. And they say, quote, the perfect alignment of MagSafe delivers efficient and secure charging with easy one-handed placement. The Boost Charge products charge at 7.5 watts, while MagSafe charges at 15 watts. So it means it would charge your phone much more quickly if you had a MagSafe solution over the Boost Charge system. The Boost Charge Magnetic Wireless Charger Stand is only 25 bucks, but that's without the USB-C cable and power supply. If you have your own, that's a great price, and they only charge you $10 more to buy it from them if you don't. So this charging stand comes in black or white, and I think $25 for something that, or even $35 for something that gives you most of what you get from a, a, a MagSafe charger is pretty good. Now, we have one more interesting charging problem to be solved for Steve, and I wrote up the show notes before he's come up with yet a different solution, but let me tell you what I wrote up first. His Tesla Model Y came with a pair of built-in cheap charging pads. They're located under the giant screen, and they're tilted so you can see the phone, but they're low, low enough that they're not very tempting to look at them while you're driving. Since there's a big display with all of the actionable information, such as navigation and control of podcasts, you really shouldn't be messing with your iPhone anyway, and you don't need to. This Qi charging solution has worked great since he got his car last year, but the giant camera bump causes the same problem in Steve's car with his phone as it does with the easel stands. The phone is tilted so far away from the surface that his phone no longer will charge on the Qi charging pad. Now, my Tesla Model 3 is a couple of years older than his Model Y, and it didn't come with the Qi charging pads. Steve bought me a third-party solution from a company called Nomad, which looks identical to what came with his car. The design of the Nomad must be slightly different because my iPhone 14 Pro, even with a giant camera bump, can still charge in my car. Now, I haven't done any scientific tests, but it appears to be very slow, as that gap is still ginormous, so there must be a lot of loss. I was looking for a link to the Nomad Qi charging solutions we bought from my car to put in the show notes, but they don't make it any longer, probably because the cars come with them now. But guess what I did find? Yet another MagSafe stand! This one is simply called the Nomad MagSafe Mount Stand. It's a simply an angled piece of zinc alloy with a slot to pop in a MagSafe puck. 
They say they used zinc alloy, so it's heavy enough to stay on the desk when pulling your phone off of the MagSafe charger. The Nomad MagSafe mount stand will run you $60 and comes in carbide black or silver. It does not come with the MagSafe charger. I may buy one of these for me. I think it's pretty slick looking. Now, after reading that description, I asked Steve whether his uh, Forte from 12 South stays on the on the table when he pulls off the phone. And he said what he's instinctively learned to do is just twist it a little bit as he pulls it off so it does stay still. Now, at this point, none of this solves Steve's problem of charging his car. I was thinking we might have to resort to trying to put a MagSafe charging puck, maybe double back tape to the Qi charging pads, and then running the cable underneath the included uh, USB ports. But then a big white charging puck, that would look terrible in his black interior of his car. So I was trying to think about maybe Pat Dangler could 3D print us something to go over the top of it, but still not have it offset much. Anyway, we were looking at all these solutions when Pat came over. She uses a system called MagBack, and it's a it's a case that isn't a MagSafe case. It's a magnet case, if that makes any sense. So it's very, very magnetic. And then she has a, a little thing from MagBack that she mounted behind her big uh, Tesla display, and it gives her a surface, a, a, a steel surface that she can stick her MagMag case to. So that's an interesting solution, but there's a, you got to deal with the wires and that kind of puts it up in uh, up at eye level, which I, you know, really shouldn't be playing with your phone while you're driving. So what Steve discovered was that if he used her case, that magnet case on his car, it actually will charge when it's sitting in his uh, in his Qi charging setup. So I'm not quite sure why that phone, that case for his phone works with his car, but he's happy and he's ordered one for his car. You've heard me talk about how the shows I produce are supported by listeners, mostly through Patreon, but I haven't talked about how that works for a very long time. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I wanted to clarify two things. When you hit the button to become a patron, it will say, choose what you pay, and the default will be $5, and the monthly limit is set to support every creation. Now, I don't ever charge for Chit Chat Across the Pond Light or Programming by Stealth Creations. Only the No Silicast gets charged for to the patrons. But a weekly No Silicast, uh, if you did $5 a month and it was every creation, that'd be $20 a month. That would be awesome if you think the shows are worth that. I don't want to dissuade you if you really want to do it. But realistically, I hope for a more modest donation. You can change the dollar amount from $5 to as low as $1. And you can even set it to a monthly limit of $1 instead of a per creation $1. So that'd only be $12 per year for over 50 hours of the No Silicast alone. But that doesn't even include the other shows. $12 a year. It sounds like a bargain to me. Anyway, I hope this information will encourage you to go to podfeed.com slash Patreon and find a dollar amount that works for you. And go push that button. I've asked Ed Tobias, also known as Mr. Ed, in the live chat room and in our Slack, to come on and talk about an experience that he had uh, with a relative of his that I think is going to be a good uh, PSA for everybody. And uh, it's not a great story, but uh, there are some heroes to the story. <laughs> in any case, welcome to the show, Ed. Thanks, Allison. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. So why don't you explain to us uh, what, the, what the basics of what we're going to be talking about here? Um, well, uh, my particular relative, call her Betty, um, she's recently suffered some cognitive decline, and uh, she was a victim of a phishing scam. 
So right. it's kind of the discussion is, you know, how the phishing scams, uh, normally people can see through them and, and avoid them. But as you get older and if you lose some of your cognitive abilities, uh, you become more susceptible. Yeah, I, you know, I, I hate to just point at age, though. I think that if you're, you could be younger and naive. Oh, that's true, too. That's true, too. And have the same kind of problem. So this isn't just about that. But the reason I wanted to have you on the show to talk about this is I think you're going to be able to very vividly take this from an abstract concept that we talk about all the time on Security Bits with Bart to something concrete that actually happened in real life to someone you someone you love and uh, and what went wrong and what what actually went right in the story. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because uh, you know you you as you and I know we're kind of the tech uh, helpers for the family usually, and mm-hmm. uh, with the older people, you know you t- you teach them to try and to avoid these kind of things, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. Yeah, yeah. So what what's the sequence of events? How did this? Uh, how did the problem start? So it's originally started, she received an email. Um, it looked like it was coming from PayPal. She does have a PayPal account. Um, it was an email from PayPal saying that she um, paid a subscription, annual subscription update to a security, internet security uh, firm application or firm or something. It was for the amount of about $740. Uh, and it said it in very highlighted uh, lettering, if you have an issue or concern about this charge, please call this number. Yeah, so, so I'm looking uh, at right now, it's got the it's got a PayPal logo on it, and it says your authorization for the payment of $740 to blah is successful. We don't want to call them out because they didn't do it, right? Right. Uh, but so it sure says your authorization be. for the payment is successful. And obviously she was... At this point, she was alarmed, I'm sure, that this is not something I thought I was going to pay for in $740. You, you'll notice that one. That's going to that's gonna leave a mark, right? Right, right. And, you know, obviously she didn't recognize it. And so uh, I try to get her to call me whenever she gets something like this, but she didn't this time. She actually called that number because she thought it was legit. Yeah, it says, if you did not authorize the charge, you have 72 hours from the date of the transaction, open a dispute with the PayPal Resolution Center, gives you a USA and Canada number. I mean, it certainly does look legit. It says, or contact at paypal.com. It it does look pretty legit. Yeah, and it's uh, interesting because these phishing scams, they always kind of put a sense of urgency on it. And that, that's how they get you to to fall for it, is you have to react right away to do something. Right, right. So uh, anyway, she she did call that number, and uh, the representative there, uh, we'll call him Daryl. Um, Apologies said, to all Daryls everywhere yeah. who are wonderful, and all Bettys. And all Bettys, yeah. These these names are made up. But um, so he said that they would investigate the charge, uh, but they needed to reconcile to clear the account, or she would be, you know, it it, it might affect her, and so. Um, she didn't have any credit cards tied to the PayPal account or any way of funding it. So they're so, trying to get her to pay the $740? Yes. They're okay. saying that, you know, they, they'll investigate it and they'll they'll try and clear it up. But uh, you got to pay know, it first. You got to pay it first. Hmm. And um, so she said she had no way of, you know, giving them money right away. And so they recommended, well, you could always go down to 
we'll, we'll do you a favor. We'll let you pay for it using uh, Target gift cards. Mm. Now, everybody so they, listening to this show, their little uh, hairs on the back of their neck just went up, right? <laughs> exactly. So she got in her car and she drove all the way down to Target and uh, went in, got in line and picked up some gift cards um, and was going to buy $740 worth of Target gift cards. Wow. Um, it turned out, fortunately for her, that the uh, cashier kind of thought that was a little suspect and she called the store manager over. Uh, the store manager had seen this kind of thing before, I'm sure, and he told her it was a scam and uh, to not buy the cards and try and not to call this guy back or you know have contact with him again. So this is interesting. I almost want to I would love to know whether Target has training in place to look for this now or whether it's just this particular checker. And manager knew. Like, the checker thought it was funny. So the checker, I, I suspect there's some good training at Target on this, because the checker knew and the manager knew. Right. I imagine any place where you can buy gift cards has probably got some kind of policy in place to keep an eye out for this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so she promised, I won't ever talk to Daryl again. Right. And then what happened? Well, obviously, Daryl called back because he wants to keep this fish on the hook. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she told him that, you know, they that he she couldn't get the gift cards because they said it was a scam. And he actually tried to be convinced her that, no, this really isn't a scam. I'm, you know, I'm the guy from PayPal and this is really something you need to do. And he, you know, convinced her that her credit would be affected if the account wasn't paid. Oh, so, wow. You know, making sure that kind of make her feel like she's got to do something. You know, what's interesting is, is according to the, the pay, initial PayPal letter, it says that it's cleared and it's going through if you don't do anything. Yes. And now he's telling her she has to do something to make it go through. So there, there's another red flag, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. There's all kinds of red flags if you know what to look for. And um, like I said, normally she would know what to look for, but... She's recently having some cognitive issues, so that's kind of interfered with her ability to to detect this kind of thing. Right, right. Um, so the that was bad enough, but then because he was saying it still needs to be paid or her credit would be affected, he convinced her. You know, she said she couldn't get the cards to pay it, so he convinced her. He says, "Well, you can pay me with Zelle." Uh, you know, a Zelle app, that's a payment app. And she said, I don't yeah, have if, a Zelle app. If people don't know what this is, uh, it's actually something your bank can enable. So in if I go into my bank, one of the things, or my bank app, one of the things I can do is get to Zelle and it allows point-to-point transfer of money for no right. fee. Right. And uh, it's one of many different kinds of apps like that. Um, she said she didn't have a Zelle app. And he said, well, that's no problem to set up. And she goes, well, I'm not really good on the computer. Uh, he says, well, don't worry. I, I, I can help you set it up. Just oh, give me no. give me remote control of your computer and I'll, I'll help you walk through it. No. Yes. And she actually did that. He, you know, I, I don't know how he did it, but he went through some either messages or something like that. And, and she gave him access, total access to her computer. Oh, geez. So, so he, was he able so, to get into her bank account? 
Yes, he, you know, he just logs right in because, you know, she's got the password saved on her browser. He just opens her browser, goes to her bank, and she mm-hmm. actually helped him walk through it. So it was kind of one of those things. She helped him right through. So did yeah. she? Did she use a Mac? So she had iCloud or, or she had keychain access or something? Yes, she has a Mac, and uh, uh, she had. I think she he went through messages. Okay, you know, and right. Got access that way because you can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, when he got on the account, he, he was just, you know, he had full access to her bank as if she were, he was logged in as her. Right. So, so he set up the Zelle, um, and he made payments to himself using Zelle of like three payments of $500 each. Oh, wow. And then he also noticed. At this noticed, point, is she noticing that's a lot more than $740? No, she's just kind of like cruising along. I guess she wasn't really paying much attention while he was doing all this because she trusted him and thought, well, he's just doing his thing in there. Mm. Um, And so he also noticed that she didn't have a lot of money in her checking account, which the Zelle was attached to. And so he went ahead and transferred uh, several thousand dollars from her savings into her checking so he could keep doing this. Oh, my gosh. Oh, so no. it was it was it was pretty bad that way. So but, uh, was that the the worst of it? That was the worst of it, yes. And um, fortunately, the bank actually froze all of that, didn't allow that to pursue. So she oh, really? he never yes he he never did get any money through Zelle. They, Even the five hundred dollars each. Yes, that oh, was all wow. stopped. So that was a it's a good thing. It's I don't know if every bank is that alert. Um, Let's call out the bank and give them cred. What bank was it? It was uh, F&M Bank. I don't know if they're local to Southern California or not. F&M. I haven't heard of them. Farmers and Merchants Bank. Yeah. Okay. Well, good on them. Yeah. Wow, that's surprising. I would have thought they'd gotten the the Zelle money. But usually it takes a couple of days. Yeah. It was was left as pending. Um, Okay. Yeah, and then I guess I didn't even find out about any of this until the next day. She just uh, happened to mention it. Yeah, she go. I she I said, "How you doing?" And she says, "Oh, I've been so busy. I had to run to Target and get gift cards." And then that she, <sighs> but it was a scam, and she did and went on and on. And then, and then when she told me she gave the guy remote access to her computer, I just about fainted. Oh man. Oh, do we know what else he did while he was in there? Uh, no, because like I said, she really wasn't paying attention while he was in there. So he could have done a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I don't, uh, he, he, she said he didn't get access to her one password account. Okay. So I know, We're pretty I know sure it, of that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, but anyway, it was, uh, it was, it was scary. So, uh, when, anyway, so it, we actually couldn't get into her bank uh, login when I came down to help her with her computer uh, because they had locked everything out. God bless him. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so d- did you take any steps for the for the future to try to help stop this or where did you go with it? Uh yes, I did. I mean, the first thing obviously was I changed a bunch of her passwords, her mm-hmm. certainly her one password password just in that- case. Just in case, uh-huh. um, I changed her Mac login password. Mm-hmm. You know, um, changed uh, her email account passwords. That was critical. Yeah. Because um, if you get the email account password, That's... you can go to any website and say, "Oh, I lost my, forgot my password," and then get it sent to you. 
Yeah, um, let's let's pause and emphasize that and just say that over and over again. That's something that that's a subtlety that a lot of people I don't think it is right away you want to you want to put a great password on your bank. But if the recovery password is is can be gotten through your email, then it doesn't matter that you have a great uh, password on your bank. You have to have a great password on your on your email. You have to. That's exactly. like that is the key to the crown jewels cabinets. Exactly. Exactly. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she has an investment account in Vanguard. I changed that as well, mm-hmm. and that's where I I tried changing the bank account password that. Uh, was affected, but it was showing it was locked out. I happened to be there on a Sunday, so I couldn't actually do it then. I had to come back the next day and and call the bank. Oh, okay. Okay. You were able to do it over the phone, though? Uh, Over the phone the next day. Yeah, once the bank was open, I could call them and and talk to them in person. Interesting. uh, How did they verify that you weren't Daryl? Uh, they had her phone number for two-factor authentication, and you know had, we had to do the verification. Oh, okay, okay. But, so they authenticated you at least yes. coming from her phone. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, and obviously, I had to have her there talking too because they. Oh, good. You know, they wouldn't just talk to me. They had to get her permission for me to talk in her place. Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. So they're on their game. They are. Um, other than that, too, in the on the Mac itself. Uh, I took it a step further and I changed her Mac user login to a non-administrator login. Oh, can you retroactively do that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, huh. you can do that. Okay. You just un- uncheck the box. You have to have an administrator account set up and then you log in as that and then change the user okay. uh, user account. So also, do you have your own administrator account that you know and don't let her into? Yes. Okay. On, on her computer, I do. Yes. Right. Um, and then I changed the sharing preferences to turn off any remote sharing uh, and remote management so that nobody else could come in and manage her computer. Oh, so they can't even ask. Right. Even if they okay. asked, she wouldn't be able to do it at that point. How do you? you I, I haven't seen that. Is that in? Uh, it's in sharing it? under this. Under this. Um, huh. In system s- preferences. Yeah. Like users and groups and sharing. Uh, just oh, no, no, no. Back to under sharing. sharing. Back to okay. sharing. Yeah. Ah, okay. So, oh, remote management. Yeah, and remote right. login. Right. Okay. So that that makes it harder on me because I live about ten miles away from her, mm. and I'm usually use that to be able to. I use messages to get in there and control her computer for her to help her with computer problems. Um, so now I'm going to have to drive ten miles and go help oh, her geez. instead. What about that, uh, okay. what about screen sharing? Did you leave that one on? Uh, no, I took all sharing off. Okay. Yeah. Huh. So, you know, if she, if she wants help, I will dr- gladly drive out there to, to help her in person. Versus losing thousands of dollars. Exactly. Um, one other thing I did, uh, a while ago, and this, I recommend this to other people too. Uh, I don't know if all financial institutions are like this. Um, most of her uh, you know, retirement savings is in a uh, account in Vanguard, and uh, that particular uh, company has a thing called a trusted advisor, where you oh. can sign up to be a trusted advisor. And what they do is, if any out of the ordinary transactions occur on the account, they will call the trusted advisor first to make sure it's okay. Oh, 
Oh, interesting. So if it's normal, you know, monthly withdrawals after 65 kind of things, or yeah. it would go ahead. But if it's all of a sudden some weird amount or something. Yeah, like you're transferring 200000 to somebody else's account or something like that. They would, they would call me and say, is this okay? Now, I, I can't make any transactions as the trusted advisor on her account, but at least I'm the stopgap for something like that. Yeah, you would know before she thought to mention it idly in passing. Right. So, And I could stop it from happening. So yeah. I'm sure that uh, Fidelity and all the other institutions have something similar. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and if you're in that position like Betty is, she's also got to trust you. Yes. Yes. Right? And, and agree to maybe a feeling of lack of control, which is one of the worst things. Right. As as we get older, we're, we we want to still be in control. And the, I, I keep telling Steve, we've got to we've got to look at problems like this and try to make a concerted, like promise yourself right now that the first time one of your kids says you really shouldn't be driving anymore, to think they maybe know better than I do, you know. But that lack right. of control. But it's because if you wait till you get to that point, you're going to be convinced. I mean, you're you're basically like a drunk who thinks they can. You know, you've had too many drinks and you think you can still drive. Yeah. And her her husband actually is 92, and wow. he's still driving, and he really shouldn't be. <laughs> but, well. you know, it's hard to take that kind of thing away from somebody. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the other thing, too, is uh, when people start to go into dementia or any kind of cognitive decline, it, it starts out as just forgetting things and, not, and losing ability to reason and that kind of thing. Um, but then it actually progresses just very quickly past that. They start to get a little paranoid. Mm. And so if you wanted things to are get, no longer making sense the way exactly. they used to, so they, they don't know who to trust. Exactly. Even their own, you know, relatives. So well, you got you know, shifty eyes. I, I, would <laughs> I do, I do. Um, but if you, you know, if you wanted to take even further steps and get like, you know, any kind of uh, bank access to their accounts to keep an eye on it or, you know, any of those, uh, oh, I can't recall what they call it, but uh, power of attorney, that's it. If you wanted right. to go that far, um, they need to approve that beforehand. So if you ha if you find yourself in a situation where a family member is having trouble, um, mm -hmm. it's best to get that kind of thing set up earlier than later. Um, because it might get to the point where they won't trust anybody and then you're you're stuck because uh, the legal system will not give you power of attorney just because you say it's the best thing for them. Yeah, I know my, my mom gave my brother power of attorney and, you know, that certainly took a lot of trust, but she did do it when she was of full mind and body, you know. Yes. But she was like, okay, if something happens, I want him to be able to take care of things. And so I'm going to I'm gonna do that. And she knew she could trust him. That's, uh, wow, this is... This is quite a story. Um, I have a parallel story that uh, turns out well. Um, Steve's mother and father are very, very security conscious. They uh, they always apologize because they call too often. And we every single time we tell them, no, you did the right thing. So if anything on their computer says, do you want to run an update? We get a phone call. 
hey, <laughs> you know, macOS says there's a, you know, uh, whatever, 12.5.1 update. What should I do? And we say, push the button. Okay. And they hang up and they they apologize and then they hang up, but then they call the next time. And they, and we, we've tried to keep that, that culture of uh, belief that it's okay to call. And, uh, and this time was really, really interesting. Um, she sent a message saying, hey, I think I've been hacked on my iPad. And, you know, my first inclination is, well, probably not, but let's take a look at what it is. And um, so I had her take a picture of the screen on her iPad, and it was, she said, it's red. I was like, well, that's interesting. It was a bright red background. It was, it was on a tab in a web browser, and it said, deceptive website warning. This website may try to trick you into doing something dangerous, like installing software, disclosing personal financial information, like passwords, phone numbers, or credit cards. And I mean, you know, that would certainly give you pause, put a little, a little hitch in your giddy up right there. Um, and it looked a lot like the, um, this, the screen you get if you go to a non-private website, like it's HTTP, not, not a secure website. So right. it said, th- you know, I, I took a screenshot of one of those. This website may be impersonating blah, 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 to steal your personal or financial information. You could, should go back to the previous page. It says, go back. Hers said the same thing and had show details. Looked, It didn't look the same, but it was the same words. And one of the options was to go back. So I said, okay, push, go back. And she did. But when she went back, it was um, a very non-Apple website. I mean, this was definitely something that that uh, most no-silicastaways would be, anybody would listen to Security Bits for any moment at all. You could look at it. It's at Apple Security Center. It's got an Apple logo. But first of all, there were windows on screen. We know the iPad doesn't have a windowing system, right? There is right, no such yeah. thing. So there's separate windows. They had X's in the upper right-hand corner, like a mm-hmm. PC would. And it said, access to this PC has been blocked for security reasons. And I told her, I said, you know, first of all, Apple would never call it a PC. So right. that's not real. And then uh, and it, it had a thing about a DLL on it. Again, we know it's not that. The X in the upper right-hand corner, the windowing. But it said, contact Apple support at 844. And I'm not going to read the rest of the phone number. I don't want anybody to call. Actually, maybe we should all call it and waste their time. <laughs> um, but it had deny or allow were the two buttons, but that big phone number out in there. And and I told her, I said, now this is 100% a security scam. All you have to do is close the, uh, close the tab. Um, but... I, I liked it in in uh, parallel to what happened to Betty, as we're calling her, because it it is possible to stop in your tracks and call somebody that you trust. But this is a case of somebody uh, who is about the same age as Betty, but has not gone through any cognitive decline at this point. And so she was able to remember the things that she's been taught where Betty didn't have the advantage of being able to remember those warnings that you've been teaching her. Yes. Yeah. No, it's very fortunate that it came out that way because it's uh, it's obviously easy to go the other way, and that that can really turn bad. Some some elderly people or some even young people that have had this problem have lost a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Well, it it is a um, it's a sad story, and and I wish terrible things upon Daryl and his uh, in his life. I won't say the words I said in private to you about what I think should happen to Daryl, but. Uh, uh, nothing good should happen to Daryl for the rest of his life. Uh, but I love the manager and the checkout person at, at uh, uh, Target. And at what what was the bank again? Uh, Farmers and Merchants Bank, F&M Farmers Bank. And- 
Farmers and Merchants Bank. I, I think we got to give them a shout out for having processes in place that keep this from happening. So exactly. good on them. But uh, but it's a, it's a good uh, PSA story, I think. Uh, and I appreciate you bringing it to us, Ed. Oh, no problem. Yeah, glad to do it. All right. Well, tell Betty we're happy that everything worked out for her. I will do that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Ed. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Take care. Well, after that charming story, let's uh, wind things up for this week. Did you know you can email me anytime you want at allison at podfeed.com. If you have a question or a suggestion or even better, a review, send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. If you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you, I highly recommend joining our Slack community. It's at podfeed.com slash Slack. You can talk to me and all the other lovely Nocilla castaways. And I, I tell you, you really got to join the Delete Me channel because that's actually the best channel. That's where you can drop in things that don't have anything to do with anything, but maybe it tickles you in some way. Alistair pretty much owns the Delete Me channel. Anyway, remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You can support the show like we talked about earlier at podfeed.com slash Patreon. If you don't want to do a donation like that, you just would rather do a one-time donation, you can do that too. Podfeed.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time, where you can see my audio get all messed up and we have to reboot my whole Mac before we could even get started. And you can join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.